Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints, Episode 8, Lily of the Mohawks. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today we'll be leaving the old world and venturing into the wilderness of North America, to meet an altogether unique heroine, the Holy Virgin and Native American Saints, Kateri Tecaquitha. In 1656, a girl was born in the indigenous village of Osernenon, close to the modern-day town of Orisville in upstate New York. She was named Tecaquitha, meaning she who bumps into things. We can imagine her as a rather clumsy baby. But Tecaquitha was no ordinary girl. Her father was one of the chiefs of the Mohawk Nation, the most powerful tribe in the region of the Great Lakes. Her mother, on the other hand, was a captive, stolen from a neighboring Algonquin tribe, and forced to marry the Mohawk chief. Unlike her pagan husband, she was a Christian. We don't know much of her story, but she reminds me a lot of Brockshi, the mother of St. Brigid, whose story we told back in episode 5. Tecaquitha grew up in a changing world, when the native peoples of the Great Lakes were beginning to come into contact with Europeans. But these were still early days, a long way off from the wars of conquest that would ultimately drive the natives from their land. In Tecaquitha's time, most of the conflicts in the Great Lakes region were fought between native tribes, rather than between natives and settlers. Tecaquitha's people, the Mohawks, were the dominant power in what's now upstate New York. As you may already know, thanks to the punk rock hairstyle named after them, the Mohawk were a race of warriors against whom no force in the region, native or European, could yet contend. They led an alliance together with four other tribes, known as the Iroquois Confederacy, the closest thing to a state among the natives of North America. For American listeners, we're only a few decades into the settlements of New England that I'm sure you learned about in fifth grade. The English had yet to establish a major presence in North America beyond their coastal colonies, hundreds of miles from Tecaquitha's people. All this is to say that the Europeans who introduced Christianity to the natives of the Great Lakes were not English Puritans, but French Catholics. The French had long taken interest in North America as fur trappers though their governments had never supported colonies in the New Worlds to the same extent as the English. Coming in smaller numbers, and often marrying with native women, the French settlers tended to have more peaceful dealings with the indigenous peoples than did their English rivals to the south. 
though their presence did encourage the natives to fight amongst themselves for control of the lucrative fur trade. Canadian listeners may know these conflicts as the somewhat hilariously named Beaver Wars. By Tecaquitha's day, the French were supporting the Algonquin against the Iroquois, who were backed by the English. Tecaquitha, being half Algonquin and half Iroquois, bridged that brutal divide. But that's just an aside. What really matters for us is that wherever the fur trappers ventured, Catholic missionaries were bound to follow. The Jesuits, in particular, worked vigorously to spread the faith among the First Nations of Canada, and it was likely from their efforts that Tecaquitha's Algonquin mother had become Catholic. But not all natives had proven so receptive. The Mohawk tribe of Tecaquitha's father, for example, had martyred two of the first Jesuit missionaries to come their way just a decade before she was born. These were Saints Isaac Jogues and Jean de Lalande, and together with six other missionaries, they are honored by the church as the Canadian martyrs. As we'll see, their sacrifices were not in vain. But while Christianity was by far the best import from Europe to the Americas, it was far from the only one. Sadly, even well-meaning Europeans could carry diseases to which the Native Americans had no immunity. It was these invisible killers, more than any deliberate weapon, that exterminated most of the indigenous Americans in the centuries after Columbus. The most lethal of these plagues was smallpox, a horrifying skin disease that scarred and sometimes blinded those victims it failed to kill. In 1660, an epidemic of smallpox hit Tecaquitha's village. Her father, the Mohawk chieftain, died, along with her mother and her little brother. Tecaquitha herself, just four years old, somehow survived but the disease would leave her covered in scars for the rest of her life, and her vision would always be impaired. Now acutely sensitive to sunlights, on bright days she had to cover her eyes with a blanket and find her way by touch. After losing her parents, Tecaquitha moved in with her uncle, the chief of a tribe of Mohawks known as the Turtle Clan. This uncle was fervently anti-Christian, but thanks to the tribal diplomacy of the day, he could not prevent Jesuit missionaries from visiting his village. When Tecaquitha was eleven years old, three such black robes, as the natives called the Jesuits, stopped at her uncle's longhouse. Perhaps remembering the faith of her mother, the young girl wanted to learn more about Christianity, but her uncle would not allow her to be instructed by these foreigners. And so Tecaquitha spent her adolescence striving to live a good Christian life, despite her very limited knowledge of Christianity. She started praying and fasting, and she decided that she would remain a virgin for Christ. You can imagine how popular all this made her with her pagan neighbors, including her own family. 
It didn't matter that she excelled at all the traditional work of an Iroquois woman, like preparing medicine from herbs, growing corn, beans, and squash, and even sewing with beads, despite her limited eyesight. No. Tekakwitha was different from the other girls, and everyone knew it. She may have been an excellent woman, but how could anyone understand her trips alone into the woods to pray in silence with her foreign god? How could anyone make sense of her refusal to marry, even when she was arranged to marry a mighty Mohawk warrior? Tekakwitha must have been a mystery to those around her. A mystery they would only grow to resent. When Tekakwitha was 18, a Jesuit father named Jacques de Lamerville founded a permanent mission in her village. Her uncle may not have been happy about it, but this time he did not prevent his niece from receiving religious instruction. She was no longer a little girl, and had clung to her faith for seven long years, without receiving any training from a priest. So her uncle must have realized he couldn't stop her. Tekakwitha immediately placed herself under Father Lamberville's tutelage, and after two years of catechesis at the age of 20, she finally received baptism on Easter Sunday, 1676. She took the Christian name of Catherine, or, in her native language, Kateri. The baptism of Kateri Tekakwitha as we can now call her, proved the breaking points for her pagan neighbors. Having been formed in the faith, she adopted even more of the strange practices that set her apart from other Iroquois. The other women of her uncle's longhouse began to abuse her openly, treating her like a lazy servant instead of a devout follower of Christ. When she refused to work on Sundays, for example, they made sure she wouldn't be allowed to eat. They bullied her. They mocked her. They let their children throw stones at her. When Kateri remained firm in her faith, the women of the Longhouse resorted to darker measures. They began to threaten torture, and even death, if she would not give up Christianity. After more than a year of such abuse, Kateri took the advice of Father Lamberville to escape from the Longhouse. There was a community of Mohawk Christians attached to a Jesuit mission some 200 miles to the north, in the village of Kanawake, known in French as Sol Saint-Louis, near modern-day Montreal. Remarkably, in July of 1677, Kateri set off through the wilderness on a journey that would take her several months. When at last she arrived in Kanawake, she must have been overwhelmed by the blessing of living among fellow Christians for the first time in her life. A few months later, on Christmas Day, she made her first Holy Communion. Kateri would spend the rest of her life in Kanawake. Though there was, of course, no bishop in the area to consecrate her formally, she made the vow of virginity she had always desired to take, and lived a holy life as a celibate laywoman. 
She devoted herself to prayer and penance, taught children, aided the sick and the poor, and formed friendships with other devout women in the community. She had a special love of Eucharistic adoration, kneeling for hours in front of the Blessed Sacraments whenever she could, and praying alone in the woods when she couldn't. She was also deeply fond of the rosary, which she carried with her wherever she went. Kateri desired to found a religious house of her own, where she and her friends could become nuns, but she did not live long enough to see it. In Holy Week of 1680, she suddenly fell ill, for reasons we don't really understand. Her friends and neighbors gathered to her bedside, and around 3 p.m. on the 17th of April, Holy Wednesday, Kateri died in the arms of her closest friend, a fellow Mohawk Christian named Maria Therese. Kateri was, at most, 24 years old. According to a priest who was with her at the end, her last words were, Jesus, Mary, I love you. It was then that the miracles began to appear. Another priest, who had administered the last rites to Kateri, noted that the scars left by smallpox disappeared from her face shortly after her death. Then her spirits appeared in visions before three separate witnesses. One of the priests who had been present when she died beheld her standing above her own grave for two hours, her face lifted toward heaven as if in ecstasy. An older woman, who had been Kateri's mentor, weeping in the nights over her loss, saw the saints kneeling at the foot of the bed, holding a wooden cross that shone like the sun. And Maria Therese, the dear friend who had held Kateri in her arms as she died, was awoken in the nights by a knock on the wall of her room. She heard the voice of her departed friend telling her, I've come to say goodbye. I'm on my way to heaven. I find Kateri's story especially moving because she brings together many of my favorite elements of the other saints we've talked about in this show. Her life was similar in many ways to that of St. Bridget, even if she died much younger. But she also has some of that martyr's courage we saw in St. Thecla, along with that holiness of ordinary life that made Blessed Lucian Bodavasoa such a model layman. But for me, as an American who's spent a fair amount of time in the wilderness, there's something even more touching about her story. Kateri isn't an ancient heroine from a faraway land. She's part of the story of the settlements of North America. We know, of course, that that story was often violent and cruel. But Kateri shows us the very admirable respect that natives and settlers could share in their common Christian faith. She shows us another way.
For over 300 years, the memory of Kateri Tekakwitha was handed down across generations of Mohawks. In time, her story spread among other Native American Christians, and she began to be venerated even outside the indigenous community. By 1943, her cause for sainthood had drawn so much attention that she was declared venerable by Pope Pius XII. She would go on to be beatified by Pope John Paul II in 1980, and finally canonized by Pope Benedict XVI in 2012, becoming the first Native North American to receive the title of saint. I think John Paul gave the best summary of her legacy on a visit to America in 1987, and I'll close by reading you his words. Quote, Jesus speaks of the word of God as the seed which falls on good ground and produces abundant fruits. The seed has long since been planted in the hearts of many of you, and it has already produced the fruits which show its transforming power, the fruits of holiness. The best-known witness of Christian holiness among the native people of North America is Kateri Tekakwitha, whom I had the privilege of declaring blessed and of holding up to the whole church and the world as an outstanding example of Christian life. Even when she dedicated herself fully to Jesus Christ, to the point of taking the prophetic step of making a vow of perpetual virginity, she always remained what she was, a true daughter of her people, following her tribe in the hunting season, and continuing her devotions in the environment most suited to her way of life, before a rough cross carved by herself in the forest. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the great gift of God's love, is never in contrast with what is noble and pure in the life of any tribe or nation, since all good things are his gifts. End quote. Saint Kateri Tekakwitha is commemorated on the 14th of July, marking her escape from the Longhouse. Known as the Lily of the Mohawks, she is a patroness of Native Americans, orphans, people in exile, Christians mocked for their piety, and the natural environments. She has many shrines, statues, and sites of devotion throughout the United States and Canada, where you'll find her depicted with lilies for her purity, the rosary for her devotion to Our Lady, and sometimes even a turtle which I imagine comes from the tribe she escaped, her uncle's turtle clan. As always, if you'd like to learn more about St. Kateri and develop your own devotion to her, I've included links to prayers and other resources in the show notes. May St. Kateri Tekakwitha, Holy Virgin and Lily of the Mohawks, come to our aid now and always, for the greater glory of our Lord 
Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless.